Let's dive into our, our series. We are starting a new series. Uh, we're in the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, I'm gonna touch on a little bit uh, of what we're talking about right now. How many of you like expository preaching? You like expository um, you know, you like when the pastor just walks through the verse, verse by verse and pulls stuff out. And there are many different ways that we teach here. Um, that's one way. But if you like expository, this is gonna be your series. And we're gonna be doing this for about eight or nine weeks. And we're really just focusing on how God has called us to live. Now, that isn't to say other styles of preaching is bad. And that's kind of what we're talking about today is because we are a diverse body of Christians, of believers, of people. We come from different backgrounds. We have different race, ethnicities, you know what I'm trying to say. Um, we have different, you know, like opinions and we come from different political parties maybe. And we have different, all the things, we're, we're different. But Christ has called us to unity. And that's what we're talking about today. So what does unity look like? Well, we're gonna talk about that literally for the whole series because it's important that we value the same things. Now we may not agree on everything, but there should be some core truths that we rally around as Christians. And so the, the key is, well, what, the question is, well, what are those? And in our last series, we left you with the idea that we need to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength. That needs to be something that we are unified in. We also need to love others. We need to love the people around us well as Christ has called us to and as we would wanna be loved. As he has loved us, we're to show the same love to the people around us. That should be uh, some things that unify us. Um, I think it's, it was Augustine who made this quote and it's at least attributed to him whether he said it or not. He said, we should have unity in the essentials. We should have grace or liberty in the non-essentials and we should have charity in all things. That's what should mark the life of a believer. We need to just be willing to admit straight up front that we are probably not going to have the same exact viewpoints on every single issue, but there are some essentials. There are some hills that we should be willing to die on and we should all agree on what those are. And so the series is designed to kind of unpack that unpack that. But before we talk about what we should agree on, there needs to be a decision on our part to commit to the, to the, to the principle of unity. So, what, so how do we do that? And that's what we're talking about today. Let me uh, break this down. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You can go ahead and turn there. We're also going to be uh, share a verse in John 17 at the end. But to give you some context, I want to just talk a little bit to you about the city of Corinth. See, the, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this book of the Bible, it was actually a letter that he wrote to Christians in the year AD 50. 380-55, somewhere in there. So this is literally mid first century. He wrote this letter to the Corinthians and um, it's important that we know who the Corinthians were or, or at least a little bit so we can best uh, better understand um, Paul's intent. First of all, I wanna show you a map. There is, um, I just wanna show you where Corinth, ancient, ancient Corinth was located. It's located on, on something called an isthmus, which is basically, you can see there's a, there's a small land bridge that connects the northern part of Greece to the southern part of Greece. And you can see Sparta is located in the south. Macedonia is located in the north. And so for in, in ancient times, the only way for people to get from the northern part of Greece to 
the southern part was to go through Corinth or to go by sea some, uh, some other way. But you can also see the reason it's called an isthmus is because it not only connects the, the northern part of the land to the southern part of the land, it connects the, Adrian, Adri, uh, the Aegean Sea and the Adriatic Sea, east and west. And so there were ports uh, it was kind of a port city, but there was a way they had developed, even in ancient times, like hundreds of years before Christ, a crude way to transport goods from ships docked on the east to transport those goods across that land bridge to the west. I, I think that um, that land, uh, the distance there was only about five miles and they had almost like a track system where they had, um, it wasn't like, maybe the best way to think of it is like a rail, railroad, but it wasn't that. It was more like ruts cut into the ground and it was just sort of a way to like get goods back and forth. And so because of that, Corinth was strategically positioned to be dominant um, economically, politically, and even militarily in the region. But in 146 BC, um, even though like Greece, ha- the, 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 the Greek empire under Alexander the Great had conquered most of the known world, we understand the Roman empire rose up and because of some le- lack of leadership in the Greek empire, Rome was able to crush the Greek empire and Corinth was sacked um, about 150 years before Christ. And the Romans, as we talked about in our last series, they made an example out of you. If you opposed Rome, they made an example out of you. And they didn't just like defeat you. They, they like destroyed your home. It took you, they took you from your home. People were killed, brutally murdered. And then they, they were actually displaced. If you survived, you were displaced and taken to another part of the empire. And so Corinth, ancient Corinth was actually pretty much deserted for about a century. It wasn't until after Christ was, was on earth that Julius Caesar, the Roman emperor at the time, resettled the ancient city of Corinth and he populated it not with native Corinthians or native Greeks, he populated it with people that had been captured uh, from all over the empire. And so he brought in uh, freedmen and military personnel and, and, and laborers to rebuild it. And because of its location, uh, Julius Caesar set up Corinth to be sort of the capital of that region, okay? And so, um, in, in fact, um, because of its water supply, not just from, not just from uh, obviously from the ocean, but there was a spring located right there near Corinth that gave it ample water supply um, and, it, and it was just a place that was able to thrive because of its location. And, and people flocked there and there was even um, a historian who wrote about it. He said, it was something akin to uh, the gold rush in San Francisco in, in our country. So when people found out there was gold, people just rushed there and it grew and in numbers, the population just exploded. Well, that's kind of what happened with Corinth. Once it was settled and people realized how good of a place it was to live, then people just began to flock there and its economy began to boom. Another historian, Pliny, he mentioned in his writings that they were so good at their, their metalworking, specifically with bronze, that their bronze was considered more valuable than silver or even gold. And so they had mastered a trade. They had some advantages uh, geographically. And, and then by the time Paul arrives to Corinth, about 50 years after Christ was born, so if you do the math, roughly 20 years after Christ lived, 
they had developed a reputation for the banking industry. And so they were, they were a, a wealthy city and the, the residents of Corinth represented every tier of society um, in ancient times. Now, the other thing you need to know is because there was no such thing as capitalism necessarily, um, there was no boss employee kind of setup. It was master and slave. And because again, because a lot of the population had been built out of people captured by the Romans and they had just moved them there, a huge percentage of the population of Corinth was, was actually people who were slaves. In fact, it's estimated roughly, the population was between 150 to 300,000 people, but there could have been as many as 450,000 slaves also as part of the population. So Paul is writing to people that live in this context. They're under the Roman empire, they're slaves. They're, this is not their home. They're not native to this area, but they enjoy some wealth. They've enjoyed some prosperity and they're trying to carve a life out for themselves. Now, the other thing you need to understand, they didn't have 2000 years of church history to guide them morally. Remember, Jesus Christ had only been on the earth just a few short years before Paul arrives. They've never heard the gospel. And Rome had intentionally set up, again, because it was kind of the capital of that region, Rome had set up Corinth to be uh, kind of, a, kind of a, a, an ambassador for Roman core values or Roman uh, religion. In fact, they even like set it up to be the cultic center of the area. And so false worship, idol worship, false religions were prominent in the culture. And so much so that if you didn't adhere to the right religion and if you didn't pray to the right God, it might cut you off economically or socially. And so that was woven into the, 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 the society, the, the, the everyday lives of the people. Along with that, just by nature of the world at this time, sexual immorality was rampant. And Paul, in his writing, he addresses not just adultery, but he addresses homosexuality and he addresses incest. And there was some, some things that was going on in the city of Corinth, even as a part of their worship, that God was saying, no, you cannot continue to live this way. I'm calling you to something new. I'm calling you to something different but there was a lot of confusion. And we know that even in our current culture, that there's a lot of confusion surrounding these types of issues. And sexual sin often, in fact, I would, I would argue that it, it always affects more people than just the, the involved parties. It has far reaching consequences and it can fracture families and it can fracture homes. And there's a reason why God has a plan for that area of your life. And if you, if you really wanna, know more about that, come back in two weeks, okay? And, and put your kids in kids ministry, okay? But they were confused about that specific area of your life. So they have confusion when it comes to their religion. They have confusion about their families and their relationships, even, even uh, their, their idea of sex and intimacy. They had no real direction on that then, but they, they did have some economic advantages, as I've mentioned. So there's wealth, there's prosperity, there's some comfort. And as Americans, I think this is something that speaks directly to us. I think all of this does, but I think it speaks directly to us because we just celebrated Independence Day. And it's kind of woven into us as Americans to not depend on anyone else. We are Americans, we can handle it. We will conquer, we will, we will do what needs to be done. 
And we have a lot of wealth. If you live in the United States, I'm told that just by being a citizen here, you're a part of the 1% of the most wealthy people in the world. Compared to the rest of the global population, we have it pretty good. Um, I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but we don't just have houses, but most of us probably have a house for our car or a house for our dog. Okay, we don't just have a house for ourselves, we have houses for other things. Do you know that we have more storage units, like, you know, extra storage than any other country in the world? We don't, we have a garage that's packed full so, so much that we probably park our cars in the driveway most of the time, and we need additional storage offsite that we pay for. We have a lot of stuff. And there's wealth here, there's blessing. And what that can easily lend itself to is a self-centeredness and a, a spirit or a mindset of self-reliance. And it's really easy for us to say, well, I don't really need God. I don't need a savior. I'm not, I don't, what, what do I have need of? And that, that was going on a little bit in Corinth. What, what, why do we need a savior? Why do we need Jesus? Why do we need the gospel? We have it pretty good here in Corinth. Yeah, we've had some hard times, but, the, but somehow we've made it here. And, and if we just kind of go along with what Rome wants us to do and we kind of keep the peace, then we'll just, I think it'll be pretty good. Well, Paul sees this booming community and he says, okay, we need to take the gospel there. And so Paul, uh, being an astute missionary that he was, he chooses Corinth and he goes and he begins to preach the gospel and plant, plant, some, uh, plant this church. And there's a group of believers that quickly uh, accept Jesus Christ and they begin to grow in their faith. But because of their baggage, because of some of the things that they have grown up with, and again, they don't have the scriptures. It's not like they have the book of Matthew laid out for them to tell them what to do. He's writing to them to say, hey, hey, look, you're confused about some things. We need to get some things correct. And that's the purpose of this letter to the church at Corinth. The great thing about scripture is it's not just to them, but it's relevant for us today. We may not have quote unquote a state religion where we have idols and we bow down and worship or pray to some sort of image of stone or wood, but we have idols in our, in our society, do we not? Maybe it's the God of pleasure. Maybe it's the God of money or comfort or whatever it might be, but we worship things. There, in fact, the 10 commandments, the first one is do not put any other gods before me. And sometimes we go, well, I don't worship any other God slash deity, but we put other things before God so, too, so often. Even good things like work and, and family. And those sound pretty good, but they should not be number one on our list. They, that, that place is reserved for God. And there's a reason for that. Hopefully that, that if you have questions about that throughout this series and throughout this message, you'll understand as we try to unpack that. But we also have rampant sexual immorality in our culture. We need to deal seriously with that and be honest about what God has called us to in that area of our lives. And then when it comes to just the, the, this idea of self-reliance, I think we need to take a good hard look at the mirror. I know myself, it's so easy for me to do what I can do and then only pray as a last resort and ask God for help only when I've run out of my own wisdom or resources. And so Paul is talking about this, but before he addresses any of that specifically, he calls the people to commit to a principle, the issue of unity. 
He's saying, look, there's gonna be all this different opinion, but the first thing that's most important is that the church be unified, be shoulder to shoulder, to be linked together in this process of living as Christ has called us to live. And so today we're, we're just talking uh, just about unity. And so I'm gonna give you four things straight from scripture here in the, chapter, the first chapter of Corinthians that I believe will help us um, if we do these four things, I think it'll, it will result in unity within our church and within, our, uh, within the Big C Church, even with other churches in our valley across our nation. Now, um, again, let me emphasize that unity doesn't mean we agree on everything. But there are some things that we, we should be able to disagree about some things and not break fellowship over it. How about that? So the question is, what do we have to agree on? What do we need to see eye to eye on? And then what do we do when we don't? So um, we're gonna give you, I'm gonna give you four things that I think will help us with this. Now, I'm gonna start in verse 10 of chapter one. Paul is writing, he's already greeted them. He's, he's, he's kind of honored them for, for who they are and what God is doing in their lives. But in verse 10, he kind of gets to the, the real issue. He says, first of all, verse 10, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we all agree that he is our Lord, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. He points them immediately to Jesus Christ. And he says, you need to commit to the principle of unity. Unity, being unified together, being connected with the body of Christ is something we make a decision to do. It just doesn't happen naturally very often. We have to intentionally unify our hearts, unify our minds with other believers. That's one reason why we have, that's the main reason why we have Sunday morning services here at our church, because it's good to sit or stand in the same room with other people and sing the same songs and hear the same truths and hear the same word of God and, and walk out with some form of common ground and belief. We may hear different things or maybe apply it differently in our, in our everyday lives, but our hearts are united in the community of worshiping together. And Paul is saying, I want you to be united under Jesus Christ. But if you're taking notes, I wanna point out uh, the first thing it says um, there in verse 11, it says, for it has been reported to me by close people that there is quarreling among you Verse 12, what I mean is that some of you, uh, one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, who is another one of the church leaders, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Jesus. And there's this division among the people. And the first thing that I wanna tell you is, if we're going to have unity, we need to value the lordship of Christ over the leadership of people. And I'm really thankful for our lead pastor. I've worked for Pastor Keith now since 2011, and I've told him I don't want to work for anybody else. Okay, like it's like I'm, it's like I'm on the Golden State Warriors, and he's Steve Kerr. Like I never want to, like I don't want to be traded. I don't want to ever go. If you're not a Warriors fan, it's okay. Like um, it's a basketball reference, but I don't, and I'm not Steph Curry, just so you know. But. Um, <laughs> I'm like the bench guy, but um, I don't know anybody else on that team. Uh, I know I'm not Draymond Green. Okay, I'm, I'm getting off topic. So um, anyways, the point is I, I, I love our pastor and I follow his leadership. 
But it would be a mistake for me to say, well, what Keith says and, his, and, and what he tells me to do is more important to me than what God says. And if we're not careful, we can get a little bit, and there's people in here that were saying, well, you guys say you follow Paul, but I follow Jesus. And the tone there seems to be not a sincere submission to the Lordship of Christ. It was more of a pride thing where they were kind of, you know, that whole idea of being holier than thou. And people were kind of using the name of Christ to kind of brag about themselves. And Paul is saying, stop doing that. And he said, you know, I've come to you and I've preached to you and I've taught you and I even baptized some of you, but you're using that as some sort of argument, argument against your other brothers in Christ and you've allowed divisions to form among you. And for our specific context today, I, I love our pastor. And I, 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 like I said, I wanna be on his staff and work with him and, and partner with him as best I can. But if you're here just because of Pastor Keith, you're missing it. If you're coming to our services because I'm preaching, you're missing it. It's a little awkward for me, honestly. And I, I do appreciate, <clears throat> I appreciate the encouragement that you guys have given me over the last month because you know, with our pastor being on sabbatical, I've had more of a teaching responsibility and I've, and I've, I've, I've been thankful for the encouragement. I, I, I've worried, I've even beat myself up already this morning after the first service for wishing I would have said stuff different, okay? So I need some encouragement, that's fine. But your eyes should not be on me, they should be on Christ. And, and if you're here because of who the pastor is or what the worship is like or the version of the Bible we use or, your, or, or all those things and it's creating division amongst us or amongst the church, even in our valley, we need to commit to, to getting our eyes on Jesus first and his lordship. And we as a church have grown and and. We're, and I'm gonna talk more about that in a few moments about how good God has been to our church. And I love what God is doing here. But I think I can confidently say that none of us on our staff, Pastor Keith included, we don't want you here because you like us. If you're here, we hope it's because God has spoken to you and he is working in your life. And if you're here because you do like the worship and that's okay, Britain's kind of cool. And, um, and if you're here because of the, some of the other things we do, that's great. But let's shift our focus and make sure that Jesus Christ is the main thing, the main reason we're here. He will unify us. The second thing that I wanna um, hit is that if we're gonna commit to unity, we need to be willing to trust facts over feelings. Facts over feelings. And I've talked about this before, but so often we can let our emotions lead us. And uh, I have never been more lied to and hurt by anyone other than myself. Like I'm my biggest worst enemy sometimes. And how, how humbling is it to think you are right and to find out later that you're wrong? That's not very fun. And I am flawed and, I, and, and that's the other reason why you need to have your eyes on Jesus. Like, don't just trust everything I say today. Weigh it against the word of God. I challenge you to do that because I am not perfect. But what so often can happen is my feelings and my, my knowledge can lead me astray. 
And I want specifically to talk about the emotional issues of, of today. So often we disregard fact, we disregard truth because it, it's uncomfortable and it's not what we want. And as a culture, I feel like that as a church, we need to be intentional to return to the facts, the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is not something that we create. It's something we discover. I heard, uh, I saw a clip of, I think it was Clarence Thomas, one of our Supreme Court justices. He says, no matter if you're in a hurricane or in a thunderstorm, north is still north. Doesn't matter the circumstances, north is still north. And in his business, the way he put it was, in my business, right is still right. No matter what people say, no matter what people are coming against you with, right is still right. You know, Lee Strobel was, um, is a, a, a current author and he's written some amazing books that have helped Christians for the last couple of decades understand not only what we believe, but why we believe it. And he's brought out some of the hard factual uh, truths that, are, that characterize Christianity. And by the way, one of the things that does set Christianity apart from other religions is that God has not called us to believe and trust in him blindly. He's given us evidence for a verdict. That's actually one of um, the books that I think Josh McDowell wrote that one, but Lee Strobel wrote the book, Case for Christ. He's also written the Case for Heaven. And I'm not sure what all else he's written, but if you know his story, he was an atheist. He was completely anti-religion, anti-God. And his wife somehow, I don't know if it was through work or what have you, but she met some other ladies that invited her to, to church. And so his wife went to uh, the services with them and, and began to become friends with these other ladies. And it wasn't long until she came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And she put her trust in Christ alone and, and began to walk in relationship with Jesus. And it made her husband Lee so angry and so frustrated because as a, an, an atheist, he felt like he was the intellectual kind of giant of that, their relationship. And he's like, my wife has gone off the deep end. She's believed all these crazy things that are, are unproven and, and it's all kind of a myth anyways. And we need to make sure that we're putting our trust in the things that are root, true and right and correct. And so he set out to prove his wife wrong. Now, one thing that Lee Strobel did was he did his best to set aside what we refer to as confirmation bias. You know what confirmation bias is? It's where you determine the outcome before you look at all the facts. So how, how bad would it be for a judge to say, you know what, I believe that person is guilty before I look at any of the evidence. And then not only that, I'm gonna only look at the evidence that supports my opinion that that he or she is guilty. And I'm gonna disregard all of the other facts or pieces of evidence that have to do with the case. We would say that's completely corrupt and wrong. But the fact of the matter is that we as flawed fallen human beings, we, we have confirmation bias in everything. And it's, it's almost impossible for us to set it completely aside because again, we have our own experiences, our own ambitions, our own appetites, our own desires. And so when we look at, at an issue where we hear someone talk, we immediately, we immediately form an opinion. We call it a first impression. And sometimes that first impression is hard to disregard. And so on its face to Lee Strobel, the Christian faith was like, that's, that's ridiculous. But he did his best to set aside his personal confirmation bias and he, and he committed to follow 
the facts. So he began to interview scholars and he began to do his research. And it wasn't just an hour long Google search, okay? It was years of talking to the best known scholars that had to do with the manuscripts of the Bible and it wasn't true and understanding what the Bible's claims were and he visited historical sites and he talked to archeologists and he talked to scientists and he talked to all these people and he did his investigative work and he began to focus, he began to realize that it, it, it's, it comes down, the Christian faith comes down to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ wasn't risen from the dead, then the Christian faith is dead. In fact, even Paul himself claims that in the book of Corinthians. He says, it's the foundation of the Christian faith. And so Strobel began to investigate the resurrection, the story of the resurrection of Jesus. Was it plausible? Was it, was it true? Begin to look at all the other alternatives. What could have happened? Could the disciples have stolen the body? Could the Romans have hidden it somehow? And he began, what, maybe Jesus wasn't really dead or maybe it was just all a lie made up by his followers. And he began to investigate all those possibilities and he came to this conclusion. He said, the most plausible thing that could have happened based on all the accounts, all the evidence, not just in scripture, but in secular record, all of it together. He said, the most plausible thing I can come up with, the thing that makes the most sense is that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. If you want more on that, I have articles and resources I can send you on that that goes, that goes into that in a deeper fashion. But here's what happened. Lee Strobel let the facts lead his feelings and he eventually became a Christian. And now he's a speaker and a world-renowned like, author because he is, he's proclaiming what he believes not to be a myth, not to be an opinion, not to be just some pie in the sky, help you get through your hard times thing. It's fact. The scriptures say, in that next passage, it says the word in verse 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who, per who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. He goes on and says, where's the one who, who, who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of the age? He says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Goes on. Um, he says, the Jews demand a sign. The Greeks seek wisdom. He said, these two cultures are after different things, but here's what we are about. Again, unity. Here's what the Christian is about. We preach Christ crucified. It doesn't make sense to the Jews. It's folly to the Gentiles, but it's the power of God in us. And then he says in verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It will not make sense to people who have their hearts closed to this idea of needing a savior, of who Jesus is. It doesn't make sense. But that should not change our feelings. If we're gonna commit to unity, if we're gonna be a unified body of believers, we need to follow the truths of God more than our feelings. This kind of relates to the next part of it. If we're going to maintain unity, we're gonna also follow the call of God rather than the applause of men. One of the things that can bring division is people get caught up in pleasing people. And instead of being committed to the call of God, the mission, people get caught up in people pleasing. Any people pleasers in the room? My hand's up. I like people to like me, okay? Like if you like people to like you, like we're probably all this way on some level. 
I mean, when I wake up in the morning, I like comb my hair and brush my teeth. I wanna make a good first impression, okay? Uh, my son, don't tell him I said this, but like, I was like, dude, you gotta comb your hair. And he's like, why? And I'm like, okay, at least put a hat on. I don't know where it is. Why? Like, brush your teeth. Why? Like, anyways, so we want people to like us. And that's, and that's not all bad. We wanna have a good connection with the people around us. But if we're a slave, if we're addicted to the applause of men and we disregard the call of God in our life, it's gonna lead us to, to, into separate factions. It's gonna lead us to division. It's gonna lead us to disunity. And I've talked to many people who are like, I don't like the fact that I am a people pleaser first. I wish I wasn't. And they struggle with it because in our hearts, it doesn't ring true as a good way to live, to be a slave to the opinions of the people around us. But so often people run to the applause of men before they run to the call of God. The people of Corinth may have been tempted in this way because remember, they weren't native Corinthians. They didn't have any kind of national pride to stand on. They were, they were slaves and they were displaced from all of the Roman empire and just kind of plopped here in Corinth. And, and, and Paul writes to them and he says in verse 26, for consider your calling brothers, not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. You're not in a position of power. You're not in the upper echelons of Rome. You're not making law. You're not influencing anything across this empire. You're, not many of you were powerful. You were conquered. You were displaced. You were made a slave probably. And you were brought here against your own free will. You were not of noble birth. You weren't born into the right family. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are so that human, no human might boast in the presence of God. What is he saying? He's saying, look, it doesn't matter what you think about yourself. What does God think of you? Focus on the calling that God has called you to accomplish. Now, the other side of the corn could be true. Maybe you do feel like you've carved out some influence and you do have some power and you do have some control and you do have the right last name. The same is true. That all is secondary when compared to the calling of God. Who he says you are is first and foremost. By the way, is God impressed with our titles and our positions? And the, even, even our best days, is, is that impressive to God when it comes to the ranking of our achievements? According to scripture, it doesn't mean anything. What is impressive to God? In fact, there's two times in the New Testament, I believe, in the gospels where Jesus says he's amazed, where he's impressed. And every single time he's impressed with somebody's faith, not, not what they achieved, not what they accomplished, not their title, not their position of power. He's impressed by their faith. I talked about this a few weeks ago. Um, the other time, one other time in scripture where Jesus seems to be impressed was when Stephen, the first martyr, gave his life for the gospel. And it says Jesus, he saw Jesus standing. Every other time in scripture, he's sitting at the right hand of the father, but he saw Jesus standing. Jesus was standing in honor of what Stephen was doing. But in the world's eyes, that was a stupid decision. 
Stephen should have renounced his faith and you could have justified and said, well, I'm just gonna lie here about my faith and that way I can get out of this whole like getting killed for my faith thing. And then I can kind of like secretly work behind the scenes to still advance the church. He was not going to renounce the call of God. Those are the kinds of things that God says are impressive. And that's not easy for us. I don't want that. I don't wanna be persecuted for my faith or marginalized or anything like that. I don't wish any suffering on any of us today, especially myself. I like comfort. I like have a couch and like cup holders and air conditioning and like Wi-Fi. Like I have a remote. I don't even wanna get up to like turn. I don't wanna move, okay? I tell my kids like, hey, go get, go get dad a drink, dad tax, okay? Like why? Like I love my comfort and I think most of us here do too. But God's not impressed with any of that and he calls us to something greater. As a church, we need to be unified in our our value of, okay, what God calls us to, that's the highest. It's not my opinion. It's not what I want. It's It's not this group of people over here. It's not getting into that social status or social club or whatever. I'm going to focus on the call of God. And then finally, the fourth thing. Well, let me, actually, before I go there, um, side note, there may be someone sitting here today that you feel completely alone in your faith. Maybe you don't have a lot of support at home in, in your walk with God. Maybe, maybe um, like at your workplace or, or maybe you're like me and you're completely introverted and you just don't have a lot of friends and you are longing for some, some kind of community. I wanna say to you that as a church, I wanna admit, first and foremost, we are not the perfect church. We try to help people get connected and, and in, a, in a, a group of people that can encourage um, each other in their faith, but sometimes that's difficult. In a, in a church this size, in a church this size, that's not always easy. It's very easy to be in this room as an individual and feel completely alone, even though you're surrounded by four or 500 people. And so I'm, I'm going to... Um, do a little exercise. Um, how many of you are from California? You are all friends, okay? <laughs> like you're just now all friends, okay? No, like just walk out of the court and be like, I'm from California. You will have friends, okay? Um, now, um, the Idahoans, let me just say this we're about unity, right? Okay? So I let this slip in the first service and I had to retract it. I said, if you're from California, you can be here as long as you agree with us. Now, what I meant, what I meant by that was we need to be unified in Jesus, okay? And so I wanna make that very clear, okay? Um, so, okay, we got through that. Um, we're gonna commit to unity. But I do think it's possible for some of you to be sitting here, maybe even as a married couple, and you're like, we don't know anybody. How do we get connected? I'm totally introverted. I took the Myers-Briggs test um, a few years ago. It was like 15 years ago. And I answered 21 of 22 questions to the introverted side. When I go home from this, the fourth service today, whenever that is, I will pull my blinds and turn on something boring like fly fishing, tying videos, or golf, or something, something you will not find interesting at all. If you knock on my door, I will pretend I'm not home. Like I will, like I will, (laughs) it's Sunday afternoon, they should not be here. Like, so somebody challenged me after the first service, like I'm gonna knock on your door sometime. I'm like, probably I'm not gonna answer it, not on a Sunday. (laughs) And so I get 
I get how hard it is, especially for somebody who's introverted, to walk up to somebody you don't know and start a conversation or to try to connect. And as a church, I would, I would implore you, I, I don't want anybody to walk through these doors and feel like they're alone. And so we have groups. We try to help you get into groups. We have um, Bible studies. One of the things I think is the best way to connect is to serve, to, to, to join a serving team. And you don't have to like teach a class or whatever. You can like do something small. It might be as simple as cleaning up messes or making coffee or holding a door open. But if you serve, you'll immediately be on a team and you will meet people. And, uh, you know, VBS, like that's, that's an instantly a team. They will all have stories about what happened this week at VBS. And so I, I get how hard it is, but I'm, I'm challenging you to step out of your comfort zone and seek to connect. We wanna help you with that. But if you don't say hi, or if you don't tell us what you're looking for, we don't know. And, and so help us help you, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But we need to, we want you to, to feel that in our church. And, and again, I, I maybe overstated it, but we don't do perfectly in that regard. Like we might miss a phone call or miss an email here and there. And I would just like to apologize for all of that, like <laughs> past, present, and future. You just gotta know that we want you to not feel alone in your faith or to be unified as a body of believers. Fourthly, I wanna, this is maybe the key thing. And that is, we, if we're gonna commit to unity, we will boast in the power of Jesus instead of our own strength. We're not gonna boast about our own accomplishments. We're gonna boast in the power of Jesus. And I would like to tell you a little bit, if you haven't been to our Next Steps classes, this will be new to you. If you've been to our Next Steps classes, which is sort of our church 101 uh, class that come, I think it's coming up in September. This is the next one. I'm gonna just give you a little bit of a history of our church. And uh, how many of you have attended Grace less than 10 years? Okay, lots of hands. Most of the hands went up. So I came uh, in 2007, but to give you a little bit of history, this church was actually founded in the late 1970s by a man named Lowell Foster as part of the Bible missionary denomination. Lowell Foster is still attending our church, by the way. I think he's gonna turn 100 um, in the next uh, few months. And whenever I see him, I, I call him the founder, you know, and like, he doesn't seem to think that's cool, but I do. So like... Anyway, so our church was founded. Um, there was a few pastors. One, one prominent pastor I'll mention was, uh, went by the name, uh, <laughs> his real name was Tom McCall. His daughter still tends here. In fact, she's on our board. But um, he uh, pastored the church for like 18 years. We met in the Zyrus Funeral Home down here on Midland Boulevard. If you know where that is, that was the original church building. And then um, a largely healthy leadership. I obviously wasn't around then, but the church grew and had a prominent uh, presence in the community and was healthy and did all the right things. And a, a church of 150, 200 people was a prominent church, still is a prominent church. That's considered a large church by even today's standards. And so all good. Um, he reached a point of retirement. Some of you know Pastor Tony McCurry, who's our executive pastor now. His brother, Ray, his older brother, Ray McCurry, pastored Grace for about seven years. And he was the one who led the building project that moved. They were growing enough that they outgrew the, the, the funeral home and they moved here to this location. And so they, they, he led that building project. And uh, so that's how we got here. And uh, he pastored for about seven years. Again, all very good. But when he re retired and resigned, 
and sort of a leadership vacuum for a couple of years. And the church also went through some, there's, anytime there's leadership transition, that kind of creates some, some tension and some things. And then, then the real low point was when the interim pastor hired this 23-year-old college student named Matt Ritchie out of, straight out of Bible school. And uh, so the church was, I don't know, maybe 150. And uh, then he resigned. He was like, Matt, good luck. Um, so, so I was like in charge for like a summer. The church, I grew the church in about three months down to 65 people. It was... I made a comment recently uh, in one of the sermons. I said, hey, I preached for a month and half of you didn't leave. That was actually like a good, uh, I, half the church left the last time I, did, I preached this long. So anyways, I gotta hurry. So long story short, Pastor Keith came uh, in a few years after that and the church began to grow and and we intentionally sat down one day, and I believe God led us to this. There was some hard, there was some, maybe some tension and some, some hurt feelings. But what I believe is all the people here present at, at the church at the time sincerely had a desire to please God. They wanted to follow Jesus. They just needed something or someone to help them unify. And so we intentionally prayed through our mission statement, uniting people to Jesus and helping them take their next steps. And that key word for us was, uniting, the root word, of course, being unite or unity. And we felt like that was the first building block that God wanted us to put in place. And I wanna say like what God has done here in our church is not because Pastor Keith is so cool, although, although he is pretty cool. It's not because we're so brilliant or smart. And I think God has gifted us and it's not because he sent us all kinds of amazing volunteers, although he has, and you guys, how you partner with us and, and serve with us each and every week, literally for like hours on end, that's all good. But I wanna say today, glory to God alone. I wanna boast in what God has done and who he is. Would you join me in giving him some praise? Put your hands together. Let's thank God for what he is doing here. You guys know what a mosaic is? Let's uh, show that picture. I've got just a few moments left. A mosaic um, is a piece of art like this that is made up of all these tiny little pieces. And it's an ancient art form that actually dates back to Mesopotamia thousands of year before, years before Christ. It made its way up through the Greek empire and the Roman empire, but it began to really flourish under or with the, the rise of Christianity. And I think it's so cool that the people of God were drawn to and helped flourish this art form because it embodies unity. It's taking all these little pieces that by themselves wouldn't be worth very much and would look so insignificant and would be even discarded, but together they make something beautiful. Furthermore, a mosaic is durable. It's in fact, some of these mosaics have existed for thousands of years. I think that's a beautiful picture of who God has called us to be as the church. Individually, people look at you and they may not, see a whole lot. They may not see a lot of value or skill or whatever. And you may do some good things and we all try to do our best. But collectively, 
and this is your kind of key point, when the church is united, people see Jesus. Is it possible for, for someone to sense Christ in your life? I, yes. But how much more will the world see Christ in us when we are unified? This is why Jesus prayed in John 17. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as the Father and I are one and in you. And then he goes on, he says, I want us to be unified. I want you to be unified with me as I am with the Father so that the world may believe that you have sent me. If we wanna reach the world, if we wanna make a, a difference that lasts beyond our lifetimes, it starts with our unity. We're gonna commit to be on our, each other's team. We're not gonna tear each other down. We're gonna build up. We may not agree on everything, but we're gonna be unified under the Lordship of Christ. He is our master and he will unify us. And if we come together under him, the world will believe, they will see him and they will believe on his name. Will you, will you bow your heads with me and pray? Father, thank you so much for um, how you have worked in our church. Lord, I thank you for the spirit of unity that is present here today. Lord, we have intentionally studied this this morning to not only invite people into the same unity that we have with you and each other, but to also commit to maintain it, to, to protect it, to guard it. And Lord, I pray that as we continue to work together as believers, Lord, I pray that people would see you in us, would see Christ in our church, in our efforts, in our motivations, in our ministries, Lord. We give it all to you. We set our ambitions and preferences and opinions aside. And Lord, we ask for your guidance and, and helping us understand and know um, how to navigate unity, even when we see things differently. And as we go through this series, Lord, again, I pray that you would speak to us on what we need to agree on, what we need to give grace in, and, and how we need to love those who don't see it our way. Lord, because ultimately we want you to be seen through us and in us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for your kind attention.